the uh, evening was almost over. I'd spoken just a little earlier, explaining how God uh, paid for our sin through Christ's death on the cross, and how he now offered us free and total forgiveness. I said, all we have to do is ask. And uh, I was uh, just finishing my cup of tea after that, thinking about heading home, when an animated female figure loomed into my view. It's all too easy, she said to me. This talk of free forgiveness, of grace, of God's love and mercy. What about obedience, she said. What about obeying the rules? The way you put it sounds like I could just ask for God's forgiveness now and then go off and lead my life as I want. And frankly, she said, I want no part of a religion like that. And her accusation, I thought, was well, well given. Sometimes we talk extremely loosely about God's forgiveness and grace and love and mercy when everywhere, actually, the Bible talks about obedience too. But how does obedience fit in if the, if the, the message of the Gospel really is that there is full and complete forgiveness for people who only have to go with empty hands and ask. That's actually a key issue that faced the Israelites after they had escaped from slavery. At the beginning of chapter 19, they arrive here in the Sinai desert, they camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the rest of the book of Exodus actually is set at this um, point. And it consists almost entirely of God's instructions to them particularly chapters 19 to 23, are especially devoted to instructions about their daily life, their daily obedience. This morning, then, we're going to try and understand how obedience fitted in, fits in to the life of a believer. What place it had in their life, what place it should have in our life. And the first thing we do need to, to uh, notice in this passage is that obedience doesn't save us. Salvation is not earned by our obedience. Exodus, if you think about it, could have been written quite differently and would need it to have been if uh, obedience could save us. These laws that we start to read in Exodus 19, 20 and, uh, and following would uh, then have had to have been given to the Israelites in Egypt. God would have, uh, would have said to them, if you obey me down here in Egypt, then I will come and deliver you. But God didn't do that. He... Uh, uh, told the Israelites way back in chapter 3 why he had come to deliver them. Chapter 3 he says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. He rescued them because of their misery, because they cried out to him, because he was concerned for them. 
he rescued them not because of their obedience, you know, so, so that they somehow earned their rescue, not because, not because they somehow made themselves acceptable to him, but actually because they were poor, helpless and enslaved. And in that situation they cried out to him for mercy and deliverance and he gave them that. It is called grace. A free gift from God of salvation. Chapter 19 actually um, describes that deliverance simply through God's gracious gift in a marvellous way. Verse 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm like a great eagle scooping you up, setting you on my on my back, and then soaring over the earth. He says, "That's what I've done for you. I have delivered you because of your helplessness and weakness, and despite your sin, I am a God of grace." I am a God who puts human beings on his back and helps them fly. Our obedience never will save us. Only God's grace will. That's absolutely central for us to understand. You may, you may be sitting here yourself thinking, well, I've got to do a whole number of things and get them in order in my life and uh, before I could ever begin to think God would forgive me. Well, actually, the Israelites didn't. What they needed to do was cry out to God in their distress, and He delivered them. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God whom we see everywhere, from beginning to end of Scripture. In the ministry of, of Jesus, that was so obvious. He was mobbed by people lost in their own sin, by prostitutes and swindlers and outcasts of all sorts. And he offered them free forgiveness. And actually, other people were made extremely angry by it. The respectable people who prided themselves in their obedience, who thought that somehow by their obedience they had made themselves savable, hated Jesus. Actually, precisely because of his grace towards these outcasts, they hated him so much they murdered him. We will not be saved because of our obedience. We are saved because we come to God and we say, In my distress, Lord, in my sense of weakness, in my sense of failure, please forgive me. Please save me. But obedience is not irrelevant for Christians. I hope that's been obvious in uh, our time together so far. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, actually it makes it plain that a that a steady pattern of disobedience in someone betrays that they actually, even if they claim to belong to God, they do not. 
a couple of weeks' time we're going to see how, how the Israelites, in fact, were grossly disobedient to God, even after they had been delivered out of, out of Egypt, and they were, and some of them were, were struck down. The New Testament tells us that is a warning to us, just because we seem to belong to the people of God. It doesn't mean to say that we are automatically saved. Disobedience can reveal something terrible in our hearts. But that has to wait for another day. Today, for the next few chapters, we are just going to, we're going to spend some time, actually today and next week at the very least, we're going to spend some time looking at what obedience looks like. What Christian obedience is. We're going to see the fruit of that obedience. We're going to see the, the dynamic of that obedience before we uh, look next week at the scope of that obedience. This morning then, we must just look at a couple of, of, of things we need to understand about what Christian obedience looks like. First of all, we need, to, we need to be assured Christian obedience leads to fruitfulness. They settled on the, uh, by Mount Sinai. These Israelites are promised extraordinary things if they obey. They're promised, first of all, a special relationship with God, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Of course, he says, the whole world is mine. The whole universe belongs to God from the farthest star to the smallest flower. But he says, we will be special to God. We will be like the crown jewels in the midst of costume jewellery. We will be like a Rembrandt in an Athena shop. We will be like one of the Juliet's Gloriosa lilies amongst the daisies. We will be special to God, glorious to God treasured by God, his treasured possession, if we obey him. More than that, he says, we will, be, we will have a glorious role, verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests in the Bible had a, had a mediating role. He had unique access to God, but he also mediated the presence of God to the people as a whole. And Israel's role was to be a whole nation of priests, to be a whole nation that had, had unique relationship with God. But most significantly, a whole nation who were not to treasure that to themselves, but actually to give it away to mediate God's presence to the whole of God's world. Sad truth historically was that Israel actually failed in that purpose. But that great purpose of God was not lost at all. In 1 Peter chapter 2, God's church is described as a royal priesthood, formed, says Peter, to declare God's praises and to live such good lives among the pagans that they glorify God. That is the fruit that we can expect as we respond to God in obedience. 
we can expect an experience of being God's special treasured possession. We can expect an experience of bearing fruit as we function as a kingdom of fruits. That's, uh, that's what's happening throughout the, the world at the moment. In China at the moment, there is a massive and continuing growth in the, in, in the number of Christians. I heard that just recently um, of how a, uh, a, a massive great university has been built in, in, in China and uh, lo and behold they put together hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, young students the, the authorities have found rampant immorality so quietly they went to a Christian organisation and they said would you actually go and get working in this uh, university place because we're worried about the state of our youth so that they will glorify God perhaps in Africa, in Latin America the uh, church is growing in every age it has to be said God's people are often weak and sinful and the stories of embarrassing failure are always, uh, are always there but actually in this world the goodness and passionate faithfulness of God's church is the dominant theme and it makes people want to know that know the God of these Christians what about in this country? well the, the remnants of our old cultural Christianity continue to decline and fade but there is a growing movement of passionately faithful believers across the denominations whose lives together and as individuals are drawing people to Christ in fact as, as our society um, uh, decays more the lives of those Christians stand out more and more and Christians have the opportunity to function clearly as a kingdom of people as people who know the living God as people whose lives draw others to the living God well of course I, I certainly know the failures in myself and there are sometimes failures amongst us but we must grieve because they grieve God but I do see wonderful faithfulness I do see humble obedience sometimes it breaks off and it is those things that will determine the real truth not our evangelistic strategy not, not our social action policy not the quality of our building not the strength of our team grateful as I am to you, for your financial commitment to those things it is the quality of lives that are humbly obedient to the living world that will make a difference Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of peace and a holy name. But then the rest of chapter 19 teaches us another um, truth 
about uh, uh, Christian obedience. We've seen obedience of his favour. We've seen uh, um, that obedience actually does bear fruit. God promises us. But the rest of chapter 19 explores, the best way I can put it is the dynamics of obedience. By that I mean what, what drives obedience, what empowers obedience, what, what motivates it. The Bible actually has an awful lot to say about it. We could talk about our love for God empowering obedience. We could talk about thankfulness for God, uh, to God for his grace empowering obedience. We could talk about probably especially our eager desire for treasure in heaven empowering obedience. Jesus said in the New Testament speaks of all of those things. But Exodus 19 explores another thing which, which drives us towards obedience from the depths of our hearts. It is the awesomeness of coming into the presence of God. God announces in Exodus 19 that he's going to visit them in a new way on the, the top of this mountain. His presence, he says, will be so powerful that his voice will be heard. Verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense crowd so that people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. The sheer awesomeness of this visitation of God requires urgent obedience. Notice the first thing, um, the first way in which they have to obey is, is um, uh, through some rituals actually of uh, associated with forgiveness, verse 10. Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, make them wash their clothes, says God. In other words, God expects his people to be imperfect. The Old Testament sets up a whole array of rituals to train the people that they need to constantly have a discipline of turning away from their sins, of seeking God's cleansing forgiveness. And the washing of clothes here is a part of that whole system in the Old Testament. Sin makes us dirty. We need to be cleansed. They, they enacted that in their lives by washing their clothes. They needed to reaffirm their need of forgiveness, their commitment to turn away from sin. They did it through that, that symbolic action. They needed as well to be deeply aware that coming near to God is deeply dangerous because of our sin. Verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. When God does come after those preparations, it is absolutely awesome. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up, smoke billowed up like, from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Imagine that sight. 
they are at the foot of a great mountain and a terrible thunderstorm with lightning flashes at the top of that mountain and over it all to make absolutely plain that this is no, not just a natural phenomenon there is a trumpet blast and everyone trembled then a solemn procession heads towards that terrifying sight can you imagine the children coming along crying pleading to be allowed to run back and hide in their tent they hate such things don't they imagine the eyes of others they're absolutely riveted to this awesome sight above them on the mountainside seeming irresistibly drawn towards the mountain there's smoke the earth itself trembles and over it all that trumpet just keeps getting louder and louder and louder this is what it feels like to enter the presence of God the writer to the Hebrews makes it plain that in some ways our experience as Christians has superseded that Old Testament experience in Hebrews 12 he says you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded if even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned the sight was so terrifying that Moses said I am trembling with fear you have come says the writer to Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem the city of the living God you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assemblies in other words he says from a New Testament perspective there is a joy there is a fullness there is a, a liberty for Christians that the Israelites just did not have as they quaked there at the bottom of the mountain but there is still a fear says the writers of the Hebrews there is still an awesomeness about coming into the presence of God in fact there is a deeper awesomeness in one sense he goes on see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens one day says the Bible we will face the God who at a word can roll up the heavens like a scroll who will cleanse the earth with fire who will judge every human being living and dead who has ever existed who has eyes of fire who has a, a, a sword for a tongue the sight of whom for those who refuse him is tantamount to death it is infinitely more terrifying says the author than the sight that those Israelites on that cold mountain, morning on a mountainside saw Should there not be awe in our hearts? 
Should there not be perhaps a little fear? Shouldn't we feel that urgent need to wash our clothes? Shouldn't we fear lest we thoughtlessly just blunder over that fence around the mountain and stumble unprepared into the presence of God? I have to confess, I don't, I don't see a lot of that attitude in God's church today. I see lots of celebrations of joyful assembly, which, which of course is entirely appropriate. God's church has been greatly enriched the last generation or so by a, a rediscovery of the sheer abandoned joy which is found in, in, in the New Testament. There is a wonderful freshness and a depth of delight in so many new songs that there are out now that we, we sing, which I love and I think reflects a, 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 a very deep fundamental biblical truth. But I have to say, we have to go back years, centuries by and large, in British Hindu to get hymns of the awe. I don't think it's a coincidence that actually, by and large, those hymns came out of the greatest Christian revival that our islands have ever seen, the Evangelical Awakening of the 18th century. Fred Britain really was um, A few years ago, many churches were seeing spiritual experiences in which people fell to the ground and were gripped in holy laughter sometimes for, for long periods. And I don't doubt that sometimes the joy of the Lord sometimes does overwhelm us in, in, in that way. But actually, in that great 18th century revival, people were falling to the ground, especially in America. And it's American reform, which is called the Great Awakening, people were falling to the ground in fear of God. I hear none of that today. Is it any wonder really that divorce and immorality and greed and spiritual half-heartedness dogs God's sake Similarly, I, I, I see a, a lot of well-taught and well-organised churches today. Churches whose characteristic is not perhaps and quite the abandoned joy of others, but they know their Bibles, they know the Gospel, they know how to organise a good evangelistic event, they know how to do church. But I sometimes wonder, do they know the fear of the Lord? And that? Now, frankly, I, I cannot read a passage like Exodus 19 personally without, without sensing and feeling the poverty of my own experience. 
perhaps the master, there are some people who who suffer from a morbid fear of God, an obsessive fear of sin. And um, they read this chapter and are unnecessarily terrified. They need actually to read a strong, some of the strong assurances from the New Testament about God's love and faithfulness and forgiveness that, that, he, that he offers us again and again and again. But I have to say, the last generation or so, I've seen less and less of those people. Today it seems to me the dominant theme is a blithe life heartedness. It actually cuts at the root of true, humble, Christian joy. Joy which comes from a deep sense of God's holiness, a deep, deep sense of his righteousness, a deep sense of our unworthiness, and yet which on the back of that is just astonished and ravished and excited and bowled over by the fact that God could love such a one as me. dominant thing is a shrug of self-confidence corpulence I'm just annoyed with him that he's not as nice to me as I'd like to be or impudent you know the uh, clothes that we choose to wear Reveals what we want to uh, say about ourselves to the world. Well, you've thought about that, ever? Like clothes become such an important uh, symbol in the Old and New Testament. They are, in a sense, our, our badge of who we are in the world. It's very interesting that. Uh, um, this last generation or so we've, we've moved towards the um, smart casual sort of book. Most of us want to present ourselves as relaxed, casual, at ease with ourselves. We're not perfect, but hey, that's cool. The jeans we uh, wear may be a little bit frayed, they may even have a bit of a hole in them, faded a little bit. But we bought them like that, didn't we? The collar, our collar these days may be unbuttoned, we don't wear a smart tie. So that's because we don't need to impress, you know, we just relax about ourselves. Spiritually, I think, modern people want, want just to present themselves as not perfect, but hey, he's perfect. We're okay with God. Now imagine that um, for each one of us here, Jesus personally 
take off the clothes that you're wearing and put on the clothes that represent how he sees you. And everybody here can see it. What is that stain that you haven't bothered to wash off? How could you come without having done something about it? How on did you have the courage to wear trousers that are that stuffy? I'm not the smartest of jackets, as my family loves to remind me. But for me, frankly, I have to be honest. And say, I think I will be embarrassed if I was dressed in a way that represented my soul as he comes out. You see why there is this urgent call in Exodus 19. Wash your clothes. You are coming into the presence of the living God. The awesome God. Come too close to him, you will be struck down there. Wash your clothes. You see, there is an offer of new clothes in the Bible. White robes. Robes of righteousness. Robes of the righteous acts of the Son. But, says the the Bible, it is possible to neglect those I have them stained and dirty and God's presence. Obedience won't save us. But you see, obedience has to be the, the deepest desire of our heart when we see the majesty and the awesome power and holiness of the God in whose presence we come to you. Let's bow our heads. We spend a little bit of time in personal confession. Perhaps there is one thing on your heart that frankly if people could see the stone that it leaves displayed on the outside 
you will be mortified. What do you need to confess that? And ask God to help you to change. Perhaps there is just a general sense. You feel too casual in the presence of the living God. Perhaps you need to confess that. Come on, Father, to do what you need to do with God.